After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, it's Mind Rolling. We're back. Raghu Marcus and Dave Silver. And we're here uh, day. again. Good day to all of you. Dave, yeah. I've, got, I've got an idea. Well, people are getting, they're probably getting bored of this constant demand and begging. And, and although you haven't gotten angry lately, that, that was, uh, you know, it was very entertaining. I know it was a one-time thing, but I can I can stir it up again today. Stir it up. Stir it up. But I have an idea. It's Christmas time. We could sing some Christmas carols to get people in the mood. Uh-huh. And, you know, we're just before Thanksgiving, and uh, I have found some stocking stuffers. Okay. So everybody out there, look. If everyone, everyone has to get a Christmas present for somebody, right, Dave? I mean, I would think so, unless they're so Scrooge-like that they just won't. And I have something that I want you to get me, so I'm gonna, you know, and it's it's. Let's suggest that it's a good way to go. It's like a or an office pool cut, whatever it is. Bookmark the Amazon thing. Go to our site. It's right there. Go to mindpodnetwork.com/slash/mindrolling. And you can just go to mindrollingpodcast.com. It'll take you there as well. And you'll see this big banner, Amazon. You can either just use it in that moment to buy your presents, but more to the real point and real help is if you put that link and bookmark it. You take that link and bookmark it, and then you can go ahead. If I know you all are, are supporting different podcasts, but how about if... You just split it up. I mean, you're going to get more than one present. So split it up. Give us... What are you laughing about? He's laughing. Because <laughs> this is really, really begging now. We're into the is deep it? begging. <laughs> no, it's got to be done. It's got to be done. Otherwise, we are down the tubes. And it's not the YouTubes. It's the real tube. And by the way, everybody, you do not have to go... And just, you, when you go to MindPod, you might like Krishnadas better than Mind Rolling. You might like Sharon Salzberg, Ramdas, Jack Cornfield better than Mind Rolling. And you can go ahead and use their portals. Or you can just use the MindPod network portal, and then everybody gets a piece of it. And uh, here it is. All right, enough of that. But I have some wonderful... So here's what I want for Christmas, Dave. Okay. Okay. It's a yeah. book. It's a new book. And it's, uh, uh, it's called Sound Man. 
and it's by Glenn Johns. Do you remember him? Oh, uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I do. Beatles, Rolling Stones, Eagles, Who, Led Zeppelin, Clash. Okay, this book gives us the behind-the-scenes dirt from throughout his career. I, I mean, this guy was one of the great uh, producer engineers in the business from England. Absolutely, this is a book I want to get. Will you so stuff? Go to Amazon, Dave. Get that book shipped to me, okay? And everybody else, this is a fantastic book. Now here's some other stuck, uh, <laughs> stucking stuffers. <laughs> All right, okay. I, here's something else I wanted, and I'm going to get my wife uh, to to get this for me. And it's the, this is great, Dave. This is the ultra-thin Mophie Juice Pack Helium Case for your iPhone. You know what it is? It's also a backup battery. How many times have you been out on the street, you forgot to charge it in your car or your house, and you need that little charge just because somebody's charging after you down the street and you need to call 911 or whatever. That's going a little too far. (laughs) <laughs> a little melodramatic, Just but slightly, you know. But let's make it real. It says, uh, "I love that." Yeah, it stays charged even if you're stuck somewhere with no outlet. But I mean, don't you get into the head then of, okay, well, I have the backup, so I'm just going to push it to the limit. And then what happens when the backup is you? you no, know what you, I mean? that would be me. Yeah, that's you. You have to ignore that. You completely ignore that you really have this thing. You don't depend on it. That's what I an see. emergency's for. I see. Now, in this, I got a. I found this. How in, much is it? Okay, I'm going to tell you. Just okay. give me a chance. Okay. I found this in in a an electronics store catalog, and I thought I'm going up on Amazon. Now these people at the catalog are charging seventy nine ninety nine. Right, mm. it's a lot of money. I went up to Amazon. They're f- terrific. Not only will this ship to you in like two days, it's forty-five dollars and ninety-nine cents. Huge savings. So, that's the other thing. Forget going to these stores and forget you know uh, these catalogs that overcharge for everything. Just go on down. And this is crazy, Eddie. Right? Go on down to Amazon and get this. And actually, you know, I I put a little caveat in that recent in podcast before saying that, you know, we support um, small business, particularly booksellers. But what I found over the years is that I do get a lot of books and other things, thermal underwear. Um, <laughs> from you know from small bookstores and small thermal underwear stores because sometimes you know you're on there and and the only way you can get it is through one of their clients and affiliate companies so small bookstores actually do benefit occasionally uh, or maybe more than that from amazon so i'm not feeling so guilt ridden about that so use amazon use it okay what's your recommendation Uh, oh um you have one and it's right Oh, yeah, I have this book, which we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about an article by a, a really brilliant MIT professor called David Kaiser. And he has a book which has the most intriguing title I know of. The book is called How the Hippies Saved Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. And as you know, if you've been listening to Rago and I over the years here, um, we do quite a bit of stuff about neuroplasticity and qualia and quantum and the connections between that and mysticism. And, um, you know, this man, who's very reputable, has written several books 
about those connections. And this one intrigues me. Now, I'm going to get it. And you were gonna I wanted to. Yeah. So we're going to get I haven't read it, but we've read this article that Roger pointed out to me from The New York Times called Is Quantum Entanglement Real? It's sort of a, a side issue in a way, uh, but it then turned me on to his other books and uh, books rather than articles. And I think it's really fascinating and allows you talking points over the Thanksgiving and Christmas tables where your Uncle Pete says, why are you involved with all those nutcases? And you say, what nutcases? Well, don't you go to these Kortans or Kertans or something? Kertans, what are they? You can say to him, do you respect physics? He'll say, yeah, I do. And then you can say, well... Read this book where the hippies say physics, you know. That's my, that's, that's my recommendation. Yes, terrific, uh, terrific Thank you. recommendation. Thank you. Uh, but this quantum entanglement, Dave, is, is really, this article is something else. Uh, first of all, I guess we should just say entanglement concerns the behavior, and by the way, uh, again, the author is David Kaiser. Uh, beha- uh, psh, entanglement concerns the behavior of tiny particles such as electrons that have interacted in the past and then moved apart. Tickle, one particle here, whatever they mean by tickle, by measuring one of its properties, its position, momentum, or spin, and its partner should dance instantaneously no matter how far away the second particle has traveled. The key word is instantaneously. The entangled particles could be separated across the galaxy. And somehow, according to quantum theory, measurements on one particle should affect the behavior of the far-off twin faster than light could have traveled between them. Yeah, wow. Okay, and then, so the, the amazing thing is, okay, first of all, Einstein, he didn't believe in this. Right? He said, spooky action at a distance, he huffed to a colleague in 1948. So this has been around for quite some time, in fact, 50 years. Uh, so in this article, uh, it's demonstrated that quantum theory requires entanglement, it requires it, so it's really a. It, it upends so much in this area. The strange connectedness is an inescapable, inescapable feature of the equations. So they started doing tons of tests, right? And they absolutely confirmed that. Uh, as they say, in the face of critics who felt such philosophical research was fit only for crackpots, found that the answer appeared to be yes, it indeed is a reality. So I want to relate. So this is what, Dave, I thought of when I, I read this uh, article. And, you know, far be it that I have any real understanding uh, of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just getting the the gist of the amazing thing at, across galaxies instantaneously when one thing is in some way prompted that th- the uh, that there is no distance that matters that the reaction is instantaneous and so it made me think of neem karoli baba maharaji and 
the numerous, almost innumerable stories of him appearing in two places at the same time. How could that be? This article starts to substantiate the reality of of someone who's completely uh, at one with it all, universal intelligence, down to the smallest protons, molecules, electrons, and is able to reorganize that and create exactly what they're talking about here. That's what I thought was, I mean, I may be far-reaching on on this comparison, but... I really don't think you are. I think that's an amazing analogy, you know, and um, I would go a little lower down the scale than that for myself, which is that how many times have we experienced thinking about someone who we haven't thought about for ages. Let's not talk about someone we think about all the time, like our wives or partners or parents or something, friends, but someone who we haven't thought of for a long time, we think of them, and then they call within hours. It happened to me uh, this week, this week. Uh, that someone who I talked to, used to talk to all the time, haven't spoken to him for several, six months, and thought about him and thought, I'll give him a call. As usual, didn't give him a call. And he called. Now, the chances of that happening by so-called coincidence are are slight, you know, really, when you think about it. There are 320 million people in the United States. So I see that as being, you know, someone told me that quantum theory is a lot about what you put out comes back, karma, classic karma, you know. But the, no matter what it is, no matter how micro thought it is or whatever it is, that it goes out and there's a resultant almost Newtonian uh, response, even though Newtonian physics has been kind of outdated by quantum physics and mechanics. But it's like that. You put out a thought, space and time don't matter. I'm in New York, this person is 2,000 miles away. Um, It just goes there. And no one has been able to explain this, but this, what you just brought up about Nim Caroli on a a lower level, because we're not talking about someone with those powers, but all of us with the power of thought, right? We've all got the power of thought. And when we think, we do actually think of something, even if it's within a maya and a delusion. We are thinking within that delusion. Someone else catches it inexplicably up to now. It's like, oh, it's just magic. Well, according to this, it's not magic. It's actually science, right? Yeah, that's what's mind-blowing that they're proving. I mean, they actually, it says at the end of the article, they have to go in and completely, uh, they have to change up their... uh, manner in which and their methodology in which they nudge as they say the ele- these particle the electron because they want to take out any possibility of human just by the kinds of instruments that are being calc- you know, calib- they're using for calibration so anyway it's very very uh, complex uh, so but they're going further with experiments that would uh, completely prove this to be a reality uh, and this you know there's uh, so many other things that that happen along these lines that we all go wow how did that happen you know and uh, and one of them certainly is in the nde area folks you all hope hopefully heard that uh, pretty far out podcast we did on ndes with ramdas and it went a further afield into what happens when you make that transition uh so uh, and it, it applies to other levels too, Ron. You know, the last time I spoke to Deepak Chopra, not to name drop, but to name drop, um, he told me lots of stories, but one of them was about this uh, 
after 9-11, um, Deepak found out about a, a guy in London who was a superintendent in a building and talked extensively about the fact that he'd had premonitions of 9-11. And um, uh, Deepak actually paid for him to come to Northern California and be in, at his institute and studied him. Studied And, you know, and found out that he was completely, you know, uh, dis uh, uh, what's the opposite of disingenuous? It's not ingenuous, right? But it means innocent of, of, yeah. of corruption or, or, you know, a distortion. And he said he was the purest person you could ever imagine. And um, after weeks and weeks and weeks of studying him, he found him to be completely honest. And the guy had told people. He hadn't just had this thought. He told people. And again, that suggests the breakdown of time and space. You know, the time and space are just our illusion because we're born in a certain incarnation with a certain amount of development. But to, uh, or for Neen Karoli Baba and a few others that we can name, uh, you know, great, great, you know, beings, uh, avatars, whatever word. Siddhas is, is a good Siddhas, yeah. yeah for them, it's no effort. It's just there. They're there, they're there, they're here, they're everywhere. But for us, um, it's a revelation. And it happens all the time. If we were to write it down every time something like this happened, that we had a premonition or something uh, that worked out, um, it would be remarkable. I think it would be in the thousands. It would be great if these guys proved this thing out and then science is suddenly substantiating. And this is what His Holiness has been working with the, the neuroscience people for many years, you know, they take their monks and they use them as guinea pigs related to uh, going into deep meditation and so on. So you know, this is all good that this gets uh, in people's consciousness and it actually just turns them a little bit out of the rationality. And this is the only existence we have is through our senses. Which brings me to the next thing, Dave. Okay. Because... Uh, once, let's say, once that happens and you realize, okay, there, through all the different means we have been talking about for, on, on all of these podcasts, uh, through music, through psychedelics, through a book, through a person, whatever it may be, that suddenly you realize oh, there is more to this than my senses and ego and mind, and uh, I can have a chance at being happy how do I go about doing it? So we get to that point. So, uh, you know, you and I love the, uh, the Tibetans for the, their science of mind. Talk about science, right? And what they've been doing for many, many, many centuries. So, uh, again, taking uh, something that I found uh, and I, I love for myself uh, in, a, uh, in one of the Buddhist magazines named Tricycle. Great magazine, by the way. We talk about Tricycle and Shambhala's Son. They're both great magazines. And uh, certainly go pick them up. This particular thing that caught my eye is, is the title of it is Breaking the Habit of Selfishness. So when we talk about if you just, you finally are on the path, meaning that you realize, as we just said, there is something, however it may be, you realize it. And you just want to be able to engender that uh, experiential thing that you've had, however small it may be, that you, there is a path to follow, there is a path to happiness. So the 
probably the first thing we deal with is this massive what the Buddhists call self-cherishing, because we're always thinking about ourselves all the time. So that's why I thought breaking the habit of, of selfishness. So the, the other point here, so this comes from Eight Tibetan Verses by Geshe Longri Thangpa, uh, and he was born in central Tibet in 1054, okay, so a thousand years ago. These people have been doing this and working on figuring out what in the hell is going on and how do we, how do we stop from being selfish? So I'll just take, the other thing that's interesting here, and we'll go through some of these things, is how potentially arcane this stuff can be. And I think when I say that, I mean that it's, it's very difficult to gather from from these teachings, how it can affect us practically day to day. How do we use it? And this is another good example. And, and, and the good part about this is that the gentleman who translated and com who did the commentary, his name is Jeffrey Hopkins, uh, and he was His Holiness's translator, apparently, for many years. Wow. Um, Jinpa is now. So the practice... Uh, so the, the, the antidote to selfishness, basically, is the practice of focusing on the welfare of others, period. It undermines the usual, usual emphasis on oneself, thereby opening the possibility for progress toward diminishing the self's inflated status. The primary impediment blocking the realization of the emptiness of all phenomena. Now, when, when they start talking about emptiness, then we're getting into real potential complexity. And in fact, I'll just tell you something. Just It's a funny thing uh, so that I just found out about Sharon Salzberg. And that is that... Uh, so. I'm diverging a little bit. Is that all right, Dave? I just got to diverge a little bit. We can I do whatever we want. I have right? a, a comment that I want to make, and I'll try and remember it. But go on, please. Okay, yeah. please hold it. Write it down, for God's sake. We're old now. you got to write shit down. Yeah, you do have to write things yeah. down. Um, so uh, His Holiness, a couple of weeks ago in New York, as you know, gave uh, some teachings. And uh, some of the it was from Lama Tsongkhapa. You can go to ramdas.org and look at Featured Teacher, and you can see these incredible teachings around compassion and emptiness. And the parts about emptiness, I mean, I watched it as a live stream because I couldn't go. And uh, you, you can even see people nodding out, you know. And when I used to go there, it's just people nodding left and right because it's so intense, uh, the, the material, the way it comes at, you know, it's just unbelievable. So one, fr uh, actually, uh, a friend, Amika, who takes care of Sharon, uh, as far as the work is concerned, uh, she said to Sharon, knowing Sharon was going to do some event with, uh, I think, Shambhala's son, she said, uh, I, I really got to ask you to, to help out something here. I have sat through <laughs> this two days of teachings and I feel like my mind is exploding. I'm mentally bombarded and I don't get one damn thing he's talking about. And please, can you talk about emptiness and what emptiness is? So Sharon is going to do this. And folks, we're going to get a hold of those talks and, uh, and we're going to 
cut them into our podcast. And I'm going to talk to Sharon about it myself next time I see her because it's an enormous subject. Now, back to, to the antidote to selfishness. So let's go. Dave, here's the first um, stanza. With a determination to accomplish the highest welfare, determination to accomplish the highest welfare for all sentient beings who surpass even a wish-granting jewel, I will learn to hold them supremely dear. So other sentient beings are the basis, the support, independence upon we can accomplish, which we can accomplish many of the goals we want. And here's the goals. Better rebirths. Well, a lot of people aren't really thinking that way just yet. We all should be. Uh, eventual freedom from cyclic existence. So being completely uh, enlightened. I don't think we're thinking too much about that, but, you know, a little bit. And <laughs> even the highest enlightenment of Buddhahood. I mean, that's going, that's, you know, going for the whole enchilada there. I don't know how much we're thinking about that. And then here's the last one. I don't know why the last one is last. A state of freedom from counterproductive emotions and the confines of a limited mind. That one, I want to go for that one, right? That's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's why, and of course, it's necessary to have the appropriate uh, teachers interpreting this stuff and be able to allow us to have a chance to understand. So the, the practice is, is simply... Uh, you begin with specific persons and you slowly expand to more people and what you're doing is you're, you're, you're dedicating your determination to hold dear, meaning send, I mean, in its most simplest terms, just sitting there with people that, and you, I suppose you could start with people that you have a little bit of a rough time with and bringing them into a spaciousness that only can happen through some obvious practice where you can get your heart into a spacious place that you can bring someone into. This is very difficult, and you consider them greater than a wish-granting jewel. This is very difficult to practice. When we are faced with what interferes with our desires or what we deem as good, we want to strike out. Rage is ready to pounce. And here's the kicker, Dave. And this is what we talk about all the time. How c here's an example. How could an asinine politician blocking a sensible program to help the destitute be a wish-granting jewel? <laughs> How can we hold them in that way? And that's what this is very difficult to practice. It is. That's the good. That's a great example. I mean, for me and for a lot of people, it's Fox News, and you watch it for a moment, and no matter when you turn it on. Uh, except in really rare cases, you're going to see something which will make you crazy. Uh, you know, a downright lie, a distortion, a manipulation, whatever. And that's because you hold a different political view, and it's not necessarily your right, of course. But last night, after a beautiful care time, we went to a restaurant, and um, uh, we were there were five of us having some snacks after singing, and um, 
it was a great restaurant actually, but there was a group of people very close to us, men in their 20s, who were drunk and they were shouting so that you really couldn't hear a conversation at your own table. And I remembered the fact that this has been a, a, a sort of a hobby horse of mine for many, many, many years. And I've even gotten up at tables and gone over to the table and said, could you please, you know, just quiet it down a little bit. You did? Uh, yeah, I mean, just, we can't talk, we can't. So I had that impulse. The reaction's still there because I'm just a human being. But I realized last night I had no intention of going over to them because I took a look at them. I turned around and looked at them and they were having a groovy time. I mean, there was no malice. There was no, they didn't know whether they were causing me to not be able to listen to uh, my friend talk. They were just having a good time. And I was happy that I myself, and I don't want to sound self-righteous, but I saw a bit of a shift here. I didn't want to tell them to shut up because they were just happy and they were showing kind of a certain kind of love to each other by, you know, just getting very enthusiastic about something. I don't know what it was. And for me, that was a big step, actually, because I'm very reactive about things like that. I won't go into a restaurant that's noisy. If I walk in, no matter what it is, if it's noisy, I walk right out because I like to eat quietly. So that's my choice. There's nothing wrong with that. But once you're in there, you've made the decision, there are other people in there. They are other people. What I wanted to say before, Raghu, was that these new connections between physics and mysticism are really interesting because they sort of combine Buddhist um, thought about wisdom and compassion. You know, the interconnectedness of two particles that are light years away, perhaps, beyond the speed of light, is interconnectedness. That's what it is. It's not some sort of uh, weird magic. It's interconnected. They're connected, these two particles. And that brings one to the thought that we are interconnected with every human being, every animal, every sentient being on the planet. And His Holiness has said recently, I read it, that, you know, we look down on, or, or a lot of us will crush an insect or something. Now, if it's vermin, cockroaches, you know, creatures that carry some form of, of potential uh, disease, that's another matter, which I can't get into. But I look at ants sometimes, and he was specifically, Dalai Lama was specifically talking about an ant. And he said, how could you have animosity towards this guileless creature? that is only going about its business and has no malice, no impurity, no corruption, no jealousy, no megalomania, nothing. It's just an ant with a lot of other ants doing its job. And, you know, when I read that, I was so moved by that because I think most of us these days are very conscious of animals and insects and trees and plants. A lot of people are much more than they were a century ago or something, or even 20 years ago. And I don't know anybody who crushes insects, you know, with impunity or treats animals badly. There are people who do. But what you're, the first stanza that you, you, you quoted seems to me to suggest that selfishness manifests in all kinds of different ways, and cruelty is definitely one of them. That if we're being cruel to another creature, it means that we're just only thinking about our, our, our body space, because our actual space includes that creature, right? So we wouldn't kill ourselves. So it's sort of like, you know, being nasty to a cat or a dog. I just saw this film, Rago, of a, a guy who let out a lion that had been in a, sort of a cage for a while and knew him. 
And he was so, the lion was so excited to get out, finally turned the key. And instead of the lion running away, he jumped on the guy and embraced him and was kissing him and everything. Mm. This is a lion that could just open its mouth and bite your head off. And she was so in love with her keeper that she wouldn't run away. She wanted to stay right there. Mm. And that is just, I mean, thank goodness for that. Thank, thank you, Facebook, for a change. <laughs> down but there it was and it really yeah. made my day kind of i thought oh how beautiful uh, yeah. is that? how incredible and i guess that's bringing it down to the human and the animal form but uh anyway interconnectedness quantum lack of selfishness and self-cherishing how can you be self-cherishing if you really believe that you're connected to everything in the right universe? and that's that's why one of those things that uh, once they absolutely prove this uh, beyond any doubt and it's published in you know in the highest scientific journals then uh people have that in their we have that in our minds and we're not so easily just poo-pooing anything in our lives mm -hmm. but it's interesting because going back to this antidote to selfishness so you went last night you 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 this is very accomplished what you did i mean i was thinking about myself i i probably uh this is like almost bodhisattvic of you i mean it's <laughs> incredible because here it says encountering a person we view as vile and your immediate reaction was this is these asshole loud mouths yeah we are given the chance and this is the point and this is this is really why it's so difficult to practice this we are given to the chance to see our rebellion against a truly altruistic attitude as well as the enormity of the test of holding all beings dear. The point, so then, when these things happen, you have the chance, and again we go back to witness, you can witness what's going on in yourself, the rage against these people. i got to go over and tell them to shut up. Yeah. You can yeah. have an opportunity... The vile provide opportunities to build character and to practice patience, and hard times are a great opportunity for advancement along the path. Again, you did. You just did this film with we did together, and yeah. you, you uh, edited and directed this wonderful film, folks. That's on Ramdas.org which is cultivating grace and transforming suffering. And Ramdas' first statement is what this says: a great opportunity for advancement. Uh, hard times. I love suffering; it brings me closer to God. That's how the the, the uh, film starts out, and and he says, "Can you dig it? Can you can you understand it?" And yeah, he says, "Can you hear that? You know, can, can you, you hear, hear that? that? Can you hear that?" And nobody can argue with him. The man is suffering pain yeah he's had a lot of ability to mo be mobile so it's not like it's some abstract you know sort of weird thought that he's having this yeah. is his life yeah so believing him is not hard no not at all so but this is difficult and but if you, if we just get to the point where we say okay this this moment is hard this moment i'm reacting i'm getting angry this moment is is very real and that's when we talk about emptiness uh, that uh, cuts through the uh, connection that we intrinsically have that the thing is real, the phenomenon is real, and we're reacting in a real way. And you, last night, something flipped, 
and suddenly mm. you just got into a place where these and it was simple. It wasn't any big spiritual blah, blah. No, but I, I wonder if I'd have had that. I mean, I had the reaction first, Roger. In other words, I'm sitting talking with Mark and Chard and everything, and and I couldn't hear what someone was saying across the table. And my immediate reaction was a kind of rage, but I saw it. And that witnessing has been brought into me by the great teachers. I mean, I, I know that I wouldn't have grown in that way over the years if I hadn't encountered Ramdas and great gurus and Sharon and Pema Chodron and, and, and Roshi Chodron and all these amazing minds that had constructed ways of, of combating it. So the, the reaction was there. So the hatefulness was in my system. But I guess I got bored with it after all these years. Like, no, don't stop that. What are you? Are you some kind of, you know, sort of judge, some sort of magistrate in this restaurant? <laughs> yeah. go and, and tell this person I mean I'm sure someone who's listening to them might, might say well wait a minute uh, what about when someone really intrudes on your space uh, like you know, throwing was, beer bottles at you yeah right. or you know that thing that was on the internet recently about the woman who walked around New York for 12 or 15 hours and counted how many times men said things to her uh, oh. that were kind of vulgar and the question is if you're in that situation I, I don't see anything wrong with the with a woman turning around to a, a guy and saying, would you please stop that? You know, that's that's really, it, it sort of messes up my equanimity at this point. She probably wouldn't put it like that. The question is, where are those lines? You know, I'd like to hear more of, the, of this tract because I'm sure it addresses that. Yeah, and it does, and there's some place in it, and we'll, and we'll get to it, that does address. This does not mean that you do not say to somebody who is potentially... Uh, wanting to harm you uh, through word, through physical act or whatever, that you take action, uh, and it's uh, and we are human. And uh, if if indeed we were completely finished beings, there wouldn't be any action to take or not take, and that would be a whole other situation. So we are going to react, and uh, as much as one can be as close into their center as possible probably would affect positively the outcome so uh, that you know, these are difficult difficult uh, uh, situations and uh, let me go on though can I go on to the next one absolutely can't wait I mean yeah <laughs> seriously we, whenever I associate with others I will learn to think of myself as the lowest among all and mm -hmm. respectfully hold others to be supreme from the very depths of my heart. A lot of people, I'm sure, are thinking, what? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> and this is about pride, which gets in the way of seeing others' good qualities and prevents the development of one's own. Now, here's different uh, prides. Okay, interesting. So, pride of selfhood. Fancying that one is lower than the lowly or equal with the equal, or greater than or equal to the lowly. So it's just many different ways in which you're just comparing yourself, basically. Excessive pride, boasting one is equal to those who by some good quality are superior to oneself. Again, more comparing. Mm -hmm. uh, comparing. Pride beyond pride, fancying that one is superior to the superior, thinking that one is higher than the very high. This is a blatant pride. Pride of thinking I through obscuration, through being covered uh, by uh, maya, 
illusion, conceiving an I in the five empty aggregates of mind and body. More, a little bit arcane stuff there. Pride of conceit, thinking one is one fruits of the spiritual path, not yet attained. They're happening all over America in yoga studios. That's terrible, Dave. Erroneous pride, praising oneself for faulty deeds. This is whack because we're all of these things. All of these things are happening all the time. And, right. and, and then you think of pride. Here's a pride that is pride of inferiority. Just deriding oneself thinking, I am useless piece of shit. <laughs> That's mm. just another pride. So mm. uh, so they talk of if others are wish-granting jewels, it makes sense to consider myself the lowest of all in calculating my relations with them. But according to the above list, Nagarjuna, the the uh, sage of sages uh, from uh, Nalanda College takes, uh, I think I'm right there, I keep saying things that I'm not that positive about, I should shut up, uh, takes this comparison to be a form of pride as well. Indeed, those who trumpet or even insinuate their status relative to those worse off than or equal to them reek of pride. But would this not apply to thinking of myself as the lowest among, among all? The key lies in the qualification that this view is felt from the very depths of my heart where assuming our own loneliness is a direct expression of the appreciation of others being wish-granting jewels. That's the key. The key, I guess, to this whole thing is you're considering everybody is a fantastic opportunity as a wish-granting jewel for my freedom, period. So I consider all of, so all of these prides in every different way, from superior to inferior and so on, all of these are opportunities. And I guess that you can only, this only makes any sense, Dave, in terms of practic practicalities and practicing this on a day-to-day -day basis, is that you do have to read stuff like this and you have to get some understanding and hopefully you can get next to a Sharon or a Jack, you know, any of these people who have tremendous substantial understanding and can lay it out practically and you can ask questions. So that's important. And then once you have some of this knowledge, hopefully it turns into experiential wisdom, but once you have some way to leverage your day-to-day -day life through this witness, witnessing this stuff with this understanding. Unless I really go after uh, uh, dealing with my selfishness on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, this is a continuum that goes on and on and on and creates unhappiness, which is the, the basic uh, premise. Eight Tibetan verses teach us why putting yourself first means you'll always end up last. You'll be right. unhappy. Right. And so, you know, therein lies uh, the, the idea of the wish-fulfilling jewel. I mean, it's very difficult stuff but on one level, but on it another, is, it's not. You just yeah. elucidated it yourself. Sometimes I think crisis will precipitate this awareness. You know, I saw this interview with Greg Allman sometime in the last year. Greg Allman was a notorious drug taker and something of a difficult person to work with, apparently, and was very arrogant and, and, and you know, the Allman brothers were great, but... Greg was, was on his own, kind of. 
And he went into um, rehab seriously, not as some trendy thing, and ended his entire relationship with alcohol and drugs, ended it. Mm. And this interview was a few years after that. And his humility and sweetness was overwhelming to me. Really? Uh, the man was just absolutely selfless in, his, in the way he answered the questions and the way he talked about himself and, and, and the way he saw his past. It was remarkable. And he put it down to the fact that he went to bottom, bottomed out, and then sought help and found it and acted on it. And it seems to me that that's a thing that doesn't happen to everybody because not everybody's, you know, a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever. But crisis sometimes forces people to see themselves yeah. as prideful or selfish or self-cherishing to the mm. max, mm. you know, because after all, if you're, if you're living in that world where you need to be high all the time, uh, you're automatically thinking that such a thing is low. And as automatically you don't involve yourself with people at all. That was my experience with drugs. That when it got bad, it, particularly with hard drugs, not with herbs or plants that help us, not with psilocybin or marijuana, but make strict distinction there. But when Greg Allman talked, I was so impressed. I was never a fan of his. I found him to be, oh, forget it, it's not my kind of music. I don't like that attitude, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw this interview and it, it, it touched me because wow. I saw someone who had changed. And was did I think he had a book out or something? But he doesn't need the money. It's not. It wasn't a. It wasn't a sort of a, a craven thing, Raghu. Mm. It was clearly that this musician had decided to clean up his act and therefore look around at other people. You know, you've completely and, turned me around on Greg Allman because yeah, I, was, I, was, I had the same attitude towards him. Yeah. and it was because in in those crazy days, I don't know, seventies, eighty, late seventies, eight, whenever he he apparently dimed on some people related to some drug you know pot or i don't know maybe it was blow i don't know what it was but he it was an in, uh infamous story that was everywhere that yeah. he yeah. actually was a bad you know guy and uh and you're right crisis absolutely is an opportunity for people to turn around hopefully the crisis isn't too intense no, it could be someone just saying to you, where are you coming from, man? I mean, that happens to all of us, you know, when someone will actually challenge you sometimes, even if they like you or love you. They'll say, what are you, why are you arguing so vociferously and so with such bitterness and, and, and trying to... I was brought up in a debating tradition, um, Raghu, in England at university. I was a debating champion, actually. And the idea that you could have like a, a sport in debating was weird always to me. But, but the deal was that every so often we had to argue for something we didn't believe in. Mm. And I was chosen once to, uh, to be the seconder, second debater, to Max Mosley, who was the head of the oh, British yeah. fascist movement. Yeah. And it was the worst thing that ever happened to me at university when the, the head of the debating society said, your next assignment, David, is to argue for Max Mosley with him. What a challenge that was. I mean, there's nothing on earth that revolts me more than anti-Semitism or, or fascism. And yet... I had to think of some way of accompanying this guy. It was very difficult, impossible, in fact, because I absolutely did not believe in anything he said. Mm. But in the little confab afterwards, he actually complimented me and said, you were pretty loyal to the cause. And I said, well, I don't believe in the cause at all, Mr. Mosley, uh, but this is the assignment. He said, well, at least you put some effort into it. And I remember thinking at the time, no, I'm never going to believe in that. But, you know, these kind of things are, are weird because debating is competitive. Yeah. And that was a, a formal thing in a debating chamber. We had a special place and I wore robes and everything. But in our daily life, we're debating a lot of the time. You know, we really are. Someone says, 
oh, I hate that Obama. I hate him. Right. And I'm going, why do you, what? And immediately it's like, why, you know, and the person can be rational and say some things he doesn't like Obama or they can be racist or whatever. The question is, do you argue with the idea that you know more than that person? This is really hard. His Holiness is right. He's, by the way, His Holiness Dalai Lama in his books frequently says things are difficult. And, if yeah. he, and he's not talking about you. He's talking about himself. He's yeah. talking about himself. He's saying, I find it very difficult sometimes to appreciate the people around me. Or I find it very difficult sometimes to understand that everybody's got karma and we should feel the most compassion for those that suffer the most. And sometimes the, most, the ones that suffer the most are the ones that are the most anti-us, most hostile, most difficult to deal with, most awful. The, the perpetrators, The actually, perpetrators. Yeah, they're, they're the ones he says you have to have the yeah. most prayers for because they, the effect of what they, uh, the volition of, of karma they create is, is vast. Yes. Uh, D- Dave... I just, what? I, 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 this is such a... Are you done with this? No, no, <laughs> well, but we're coming time. to the end, and I haven't even got... We went through two, and there's like eight, or it's, oh. yeah, it's you like... You always we, do this. I well, mean, we have to continue at another time, and right. and in the midst of... I don't know why this piqued my uh, interest, the little story you told about the bugs. Remember earlier? We were talking yeah. about bugs? Okay. Yeah. I yeah. read this thing about bugs, okay? I got it. And it's really, it happened to me. And, and I, as you were talking about the bugs, I was getting more and more kind of embarrassed. Uh, so this guy, uh, it, it's, it's an article on smushing bugs. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's you funny because it's right below the other thing that I... Oh, really? Yeah. It's crazy. I note that Jainism originated in India. You know the Jains? Yes. You know Jains, eh? little about them, yes. A country to which stink bugs are not indigenous. The stink bug... An invasive, we should say, Jane's, they do not kill anything. That's the main central thing. No killing, nothing. The mosquito, you can be swarmed upon. You cannot, terrible. The stink bug, an invasive species, has taken over the mid-Atlantic region, including my house. And in my house, he's saying his house. In my house, they took over, Dave. It's oh. terrible. In the last few years, as swiftly as the Martians conquered England. <laughs> <laughs> it was from stink bugs that I learned that any animal in sufficient numbers can be horrific. It's, hor- and it, it's horrific. They're going in my blinds, and they're going through the thing. They go all crawl all the way. Th- you can't get them out, even if they died. I mean, it's a huge quandri- quandary. I had to just tap them. To, it was terrible. Try and get them to run. And then I'd keep tapping so they'd run out. And if oh. an effective stink bug trap can be dis- constructed, and I didn't know this, out of a two-liter soda bottle and an LED. <laughs> but I, I find it more thorough and meditative to eradicate them through piecework using the nozzle of my vacuum cleaner. They make a very satisfa- a satisfying sound when you suck them up. Then they get to live out the rest of their lives in the oubliette of the vacuum bag. <laughs> <laughs> so my compassion is not quite Buddha-like in its embrace. <laughs> I would say not. <laughs> and that's where I was at. I tried not to kill them. I killed a couple. I felt it was a whole moment. I had a moment. Again, there. once you read about this, you don't want to do it. I mean, I have this experience. I have no pets except one. I do have one, spe- one pet, Boris. Boris has been with me, or at least something that looks like Boris, for about five years. 
uh, I have a bunch of cacti and, and plants on the kitchen windowsill, and every so you know I water them every three days, and I now spray them with this super technological sprayer I have. But every time, every say fourth time I do it, I notice I'm destroying a spider web. Very rarely see Boris, and then recently Boris came out. Oh. When I started to spray, he came out and looked at me, and I just destroyed his apartment complex and his way of eating. And he just ran away, and I, I thought, oh, I don't even want to drop water on him anymore. Apart from killing, nobody wants to kill spiders, I think. I think spiders are sort of exempt from this cruelty. Uh, people get scared of spiders, and they jump and stuff. But this spider has lived with me for a long time in, the, in between my plants. I still spray it, but when I do it, I try and do it just on the leaves and not... Because Wait. I know it's wiping out his web every no, time. No, water doesn't wipe out the web. What are you, are you doing? Are you getting right up there and shooting the water? Well, I have this very high-tech sprayer that I bought oh, on Jesus. Amazon. Amazon. With my, with my portal. <laughs> and this sprayer, you pump it, you know, and then it has this high-powered thing, and you can spray from like a foot away, and it just goes everywhere with this fine oh. spray, and the plants love it. But Boris does not love it. How did Boris and, get his name, by the way? Well, but from the Who song, Boris the Spider. Oh, I see. From way back. I didn't even know this. This is some intimacy around your friendship and pet spider that you've yes, never shared with me. I went th three months without seeing him, and I was a bit grieved by it because I thought I'd assassinated him. And then, lo and behold, he reappeared. He's very industrious. I mean, once <laughs> I destroyed his web, he comes by the time I spray it again, there's another web there. So how could I kill this creature? You know, we're not exactly having a relationship. You are when you've got a name to the damn thing. Come on. <laughs> and look, folks out there, this is what happens to people. We age and we spend more time alone <laughs> and we start to develop. He could, Dave could have an imaginary friend soon. Well, you do have one. It's I do. I Shirdi, do. Sai I do. Baba, Ninka Roli Baba. No, thanks to you and your cohorts, I do. <laughs> yeah. But no, I do like him because he doesn't harm anything. I mean, you know, he's cool. He, he, and he's he not eats like spi he eats spiders eat bugs that are, you know, they that bugs, way yeah. you don't have to worry about killing other things, flies and stuff. You're saved. Right. All right, this is enough of that. A recommendation for everybody, The Who. If you've not heard of The Who, I don't know what planet you're on, but, you you know, it's oh, a long on. time ago now. But The Who are just celebrating their 50th anniversary as a rock band. And when I was watching rock music in the 60s in England, they were by far and away the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. They were just spectacularly incredible. And Townsend, his guitar playing was amazing. So I recommend to you any Who record, anyone, really, Tommy or the best hits or Pinball Wizard or anything. You'll love them if you haven't heard of them. And if you don't like them, I'm sorry. But go through the Amazon portal for either Mind Rolling or anyone on the MindPod network. And you can get these great books that Raga recommends and these rock and roll records that I'm recommending. And you can help us. And the you know. iPhone charger. I, I have more. I'm going to talk oh, about yeah. more next yeah. uh, next uh, podcast. Because we're getting the time. you got to do this now if you're going to get this product. Although Amazon probably can deliver you right on the 25th. They'll probably have someone come over to your house. Uh, I mean, Amazon's incredible. So uh, that's it, folks. That's it. We're on uh. our uh, last seconds of this podcast. And I promise that next time... We will continue with our antidote to selfishness and trying to figure out how we can use some of these incredible Tibetan teachings. So, okay, Dave? 
Yeah, great. Great. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. See you next time. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and just take part in the riches that are there. See you, folks.